This last week, our city was struck with a terrible tragedy when a person in a van ran over as many people as he could run over going down Young Street. This is the kind of thing that we hear about that happens somewhere else, but not here, not at home. Ten people lost their lives in that, and 16 more have been injured uh, by this senseless, wicked, terrible thing committed by this individual. And uh, bodies are strewn all over. People are trying to help. And, and the trouble is that that didn't just happen here. In fact, in China this week, somebody took a knife and went into a school and killed uh, nine children with ten more wounded. And, and those two things are, are but a representative of the kind of things, the, the carnage that continues in our world on a daily and weekly basis as we hurt each other. And um, our hearts go out to those um, in our community who have um, lost loved ones in this terrible thing, uh, this terrible tragedy. Um, our hearts go out to uh, friends. Uh, they go out to uh, first responders, uh, people who were witnessing this and trying to help on the scene and, and who have been absolutely traumatized uh, by this. And let's just take a moment and pray for these people, shall we? Our Father, it is so distressing to see the kind of thing that happened a week ago here in our city. Lord, we think of those families who have lost loved ones. Lord, our hearts go out to them and we lift them before you in prayer and ask that you would be to them what they need at this time, that you would pour your comfort and your grace over them in this time of terrible loss. We pray for those who who have had to respond to these things and, and who are not, uh, not unaffected by this terrible thing that, that they've seen and those who were witness to this in helping people. Lord, I pray that you would grant peace for their minds. Lord, I pray for the people of our community where there's, there's just sometimes a feeling of a lack of safety even in our own home. And so we pray that you would grant peace for that. We thank you for all of those who helped, and we thank you for the way people rallied together to support and to memorialize these folks who have lost their lives. And Lord, something in us cries out with the, with the scripture writer, how long, O Lord, before you come? Lord, you taught us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and we so long that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because we know the only hope of the world is Jesus Christ. And as his church and as his representative, you give us to the world to share with them. And I pray, Father, that we would be faithful witnesses to Jesus Christ. And that in the good news of the gospel, they might come to embrace him and find hope personally and hope for our, our community as well. And so we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you uh, 
haven't been with us, we're in the midst of a series on worship. And that line from the, uh, from the uh, Lord's Prayer, where Jesus uh, tells them uh, to pray for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. I, I got thinking about that and thinking about this What do we learn from what happens in heaven where the will of God is perfectly enacted? Uh, What do we learn that we could apply to worship? And it's interesting as we look through the the scripture, uh, what we find is we are given a picture of some things that are going on in heaven. And we see worship in heaven. And we see what it looks like for God to be on his throne and to be worshipped in that place. And how he's worshipped. And so this morning, what I want to do is, I want us to, to kind of, as God does, just take back the curtain for a few moments. And gives us an insight and, and a, a vision of what is happening in heaven. Where his will is perfectly fulfilled. And uh, what I'm going to do is, uh, I'm going to uh, read for you a passage of scripture. Um, The last book of the Bible, I'm not going to ask you to turn to it. You see, back in the Bible days, uh, they didn't have a, uh, excuse me, in the New Testament days, they didn't have a Bible. Um, And the church would gather together, and John's letter uh, to the seven churches in the book of Revelation would be read for them. Um, if If you think it's long, some of these things, to read the whole thing would take quite a long time. I'm going to read two passages of scripture, and I want you to be a first century audience, and I want you to listen. I want to set the scene for you. Uh, It's a time at the end of the first century where there's persecution of Christians. Uh, This is probably the very last book of the Bible that was written. Uh, It was written by uh, the Apostle John, and uh, God shows him a picture of things in heaven and things that will take place in the future. And would you give good attention as I read from Revelation 4 and 5? John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once, John says, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who was seated sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four creatures, each of them had six wings and are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever, 
the 24 elders fall down before him who's seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, Lord, our God, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scrolls or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped the word of the Lord. We have a picture in, in, this is a type of literature that is difficult for us because we don't understand this literature too well, but it was a form of literature Uh, in around the time that the New Testament was written. It's called apocalyptic. And it's full of these weird visions of things that are you had a bad dream about. Uh, You're just like a a bad trip or something, and it's all this weird stuff. But this was a form of communication, and God used this form of communication uh, to show John the kinds of things that would come in the future. And uh, so from this, uh, what we see is worship in heaven. And what I want to help us look at this morning is this, uh, to see something of what we learn from worship in heaven that can instruct us here in our worship on earth. So that as it is done in heaven, according to God's will, so we also may. The first thing I want to point out to you uh, is this. God is the focus of worship. God is the focus of worship. When I say God, I'm talking about the Trinity, but here specifically the Father and Son are the focus of worship. 
John is invited to go into heaven. The door is open for him, and he's to record what he sees. And it was absolutely stunning, breathtaking. God is on a throne, and there is no physical description of God, just these things that uh, it was like uh, these precious stones, and there's no description of God, um, which there is not in the Bible that we have. On the throne, God is on the throne. In fact, 17 times in these two chapters, we hear about the throne. Um, The symbol, it's a symbol of rulership. It's a symbol of power and honor and majesty. God is enthroned. We don't really get this so much. In Britain, they would understand it more with the monarchy. And a while back, I saw something of the coronation of the queen uh, that they had a special on. And, and just to see the pomp and the pageantry and, and the throne. But, but God is on a throne that rules over the universe. Um, and, and I want you to see that that throne is central to everything. So here is God on his throne. And here are these weird looking things called the four living beings. Or four living creatures that surround the throne. And uh, they probably represented the, the, the strongest and the fastest and wisest of all of created things. They're high-ranking um, angelic beings. Uh, one looked like a lion and an ox and a human and, and an eagle. And they've got wings and they, they cover themselves and they fly with their wings. And, and uh, these are powerful angelic beings that surround God's throne. And beyond that, there is a circle of 24 thrones. And on those thrones are 24 elders wearing white robes and, and having golden crowns. And uh, I want you to notice that God is central to all of that. God is the center spatially, and God is the center in terms of focus. All the focus is on God. Now, God is on his throne, and he's being worshipped by angels in chapter 4. In chapter 5, we find that Jesus is there. Jesus is also in the center of the throne. Uh, And he is described as a lion uh, of the tribe of Judah, which was something that was given to him back in, in uh, Genesis 49, uh, that there would be one coming through the tribe of Judah, w- which would be the Messiah and the ruler. And, and there's a strange thing, though. It looked, he was a lion, but he also was a lamb. You can do this in this kind of literature. Like, I know we, can't, we have trouble bouncing back and forth, but in this kind of literature, they did that. So he, he's a lion, a fierce lion, but he is also a lamb. But that lamb had been slain. He'd been slaughtered. And you saw that in this picture of this lamb. And there was a scroll that God the Father had in his hand. Um, it was written on both sides, which normally they didn't do unless they were short. And, and it was rolled up. And each segment was, uh, was affixed with a, uh, a seal, with a wax seal. And it would be tied together with some thread and have some wax with an imprint of whoever had the authority to do that on it. And uh, they said, who's open, who, who, is, uh, who is the authority? Who's worthy? Who can open this scroll? Now this scroll, I believe, was the unfolding of the final events of history. And no one in, in heaven or on earth or under the earth was there who could, could take that scroll and open it. Nobody had... Uh, uh, any authority to do that. And, and so John begins to weep. 
He weeps because there's nobody that can open that scroll. And then he said, look, don't weep because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb that was slain, has the authority to open up those seals. And, and, and so Jesus takes that scroll from the hand of God and this elicits from them worship. And, and, and here's what they, they, they uh, sang. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you trans, tra, uh, uh, ransomed people for God from every tribe, nation, uh, people, uh, and language. And you made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So God is praised in the center of the throne, and now the Lamb is being praised by all of these angelic beings as well in the center of the throne. Uh, because he was worthy and, and uh, authorized to do those things. I want you to see that there's these kind of concentric circles. You've got the, the throne where the Father and the Lamb, God and the Lamb are. And you've got the four living creatures. And you've got the 24 elders. And now we're going to add to that angels. Tens of millions of angels are going to surround that. Thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. It's a whole lot of them. And they will surround that throne. And who's at the center of this whole thing? Spatially. It's God. And it's Jesus. And, and, and we see them. And they are worshipped. Watch this. Um, he says here. Um, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might. But when we go down further, we find that to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor. And, and this is now God and the Lamb are being worshipped the same. This is really important. You know, there are groups out there, uh, religious groups, who don't afford Jesus the status of deity. They say Jesus isn't God. Where, where, when you go through the, the scriptures, it's very clear that he is, and, and so poignantly portrayed in Revelation. So some people will say, well, Jesus was created, and God, he was God's servant, but he wasn't co-equal with God. No, he was absolutely co-equal with God. It's interesting, there are two places in Revelation where... Uh, John falls before a powerful angel. I mean, you know, this, this angel thing, uh, little cherub, is, is so wrong. Angels were fearsome, big, glorious, and, and John is in the presence of an angel, and he falls down to worship, and the angel says, uh-uh, uh-uh, get up. You only worship God. God is the, the sole focus of worship. You don't worship angels. You don't worship anything else. And we see people who worship this and that. that we see them worship the sun and the moon and things on earth. We, we see people who, who will uh, deny that, that Jesus is God. Here he is receiving all the worship as God worships when, when we're not allowed to worship anybody else but God. He is co-equal with God. And now the center of the focus will move out from all of these angels. In verse 13 of chapter 5, I heard every, uh, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, 
to the Father, to God the Father, and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Worship is directed to God and to God exclusively. Let me ask you a question. Well, we came in here and we gathered together. Where is our attention focused? Is it on the pastor? Uh, Is it on the music team? Is it on the decor? Is it the skill of the musicians? Is it the music we're singing? Is it is it other thoughts that are in our head? Is it looking around at somebody else? And, or, or is our attention focused on God? Does everything come back to focus on the Father and the Son? See, sometimes our focus isn't that way. And uh, we, we've come, we sang last week, we've come into this place to... Um, Gather in his name and worship him. Let's forget about ourselves. Let's concentrate on him and worship him. And what you see in heaven, what we learn in heaven is first and foremost is that here is the throne and the throne is in the middle of everything and all the attention is focused on God and on the Lamb. Um, Amidst all of the kind of personality cult. I, you know, sometimes there's some phenomenal Christian servants or musicians, and, you know, I, I love to go and hear good preaching. Uh, I, I, you know, and I get all amped up about, you know, some of my favorite preachers and listening to them and being fed by them. But, but we have to watch in this. Uh, you know, you're, you're uh, you know, Christian artists, and we're, we're consumed with them. It's almost like they become a, a, a cult idol uh, worship. But what we do here, what we do here, is God is to be central. And when you came into worship, I, I know you're focused, you're reading what's on the screens and whatnot. But, but the question is, we're singing for God. We're praying to God. Our focus... so. So uh, when, when uh, Colin was praying, uh, we should be zoned in with him and, and, and taking that prayer to God. When we're here, God is here to receive our worship. And, and God is concerned with what we offer him. And if your mind is, you know, way far away and you're, you're just, oh man, how long is this thing going to go? Oh, you, you know, it's not on God. And God is to be the focus. And whatever we do in a public way should be pointing you to God. So important. Now some of you, if you're really keen here, you say, you know what? You didn't talk about the Holy Spirit. What happened to the the Holy Spirit? Um, Don't we believe in a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Absolutely. Absolutely. In, in, in chapter 4 and verse 5, before the throne were seven lamps blazing, and they're the seven spirits of God. God the Spirit is there, and we worship God the Spirit. But you notice the focus is predominantly on the Father, and the Father wants the Son to be worshipped. The Father elevates the Son and wants us to worship the Son. And the Spirit, though we worship the Spirit, the Spirit's primary task is enabling us to worship God properly. So he is, he's not forgotten. But, but I tell you, we need to be a little careful, too, 
Um, because the Spirit, what the Spirit does is he works in us so that we appreciate uh, the majesty and glory and beauty and perfections of God, and we worship him. And he enables that. And, and he's happy to take a subservient kind of role where he's not the focus. Now, let me say, though, and this, is, this is delicate, but if you worship the Spirit inordinately, you miss the point of what the Spirit is trying to do to exalt the Father and to exalt the Son. Now, we do worship the Spirit, but as I say, to have an inordinate focus on Him, and it's just like, how can you even say that? Inordinate focus on the, one of the members of the Trinity. Uh, but, but His role is to help us worship the way God wants us to. Um, secondly, worship demands reverence. There's a portrait as, as Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation is open. There's, uh, there's an encounter with Jesus. And I, I just, I, I want you to see it. In, in chapter 1, he talks to John. And uh, John says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. That's Jesus. Clothed with a long robe. And with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white, like wool, white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. They were piercing. They looked right through you. They saw into you. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Uh, That was something that was very strong and and polished and and something that was used in battle. And, and, And his feet... Uh, we're, like, we're like that. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Man, to accomplish whatever he wants, to, to cut down, to judge whatever he wanted. And his face was like sun shining in full strength. This is not the picture of Jesus we have uh, hanging on the cross or being beaten by the Roman soldiers. This isn't a picture of Jesus who looks somewhat uh, morose and forlorn. Um, This is a mighty, powerful, intimidating, awesome figure. John says, I fell at his feet like I was dead. I felt a hand on me. He said, don't be afraid. Stand up. It's interesting, this picture. We move to the throne room. And now we see God there. And what's happening is that there's thunder and lightning and, and things are shaking and it's kind of fearful. I, I forgot to mention that when Jesus spoke, it was like roaring waters. It was like being at the bottom of, of the uh, Niagara Falls. It, it was intimidating. And now we're here in the throne room and, and coming from the throne are lightning and thunder and, and the kind of things that we kind of characterize uh, God. And, and that takes us right back to Um, Exodus 19 and 20 where God met with his people on Sinai and a dark cloud descends over and there's fire and lightning and thunder and the whole mountain is quaking and and the people were so freaked out by this that they said to Moses don't let God speak anymore because God had spoken audibly to his people don't let God speak anymore get him to tell you and you tell us because we're afraid of God And uh, 
here we are. And, and the four living beings cry out in the midst of this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And the 24 elders fall down before him and they, and, uh, they worship him. And, and now you've got two words that are being used. One is to fall down. So in the presence of God, what worship is, is, is to fall before him, to, 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 to bow down before him. The other word used for, it's the most common word used for worship in the New Testament. And it means really um, to kiss a person's feet or to kiss the hem of their garment. So you, you would bend down before them and you acknowledge their worthiness, their superiority, and you would submit yourself to them. This is what worship looked like. This is what the angels did. They fell before him. Uh, they worshipped him. They bowed down before him. And they had this inner attitude of respect and homage that they valued him, that he was worthy, and comparatively they were nothing before, before him. And what they did was they took their golden crowns and, and they laid them at his feet. They said, you know, we, we give up any authority that we have is, is not worthy. You are worthy of all the authority. And we lay our crowns before you and we submit ourselves before you. That's worship. That's worship. It's that attitude. It's, it's those kind of actions. And when Jesus takes the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fall before him and worship and they sing a new song. You're worthy. You're worthy. And in chapter 5 and verse 14, they fall down again. And, And we see this picture of all of creation falling before him, acknowledging him. God the Father, God the Son. God the Holy Spirit, are to be reverenced and respected, held in the highest honor as as eminently worthy. And I want to tell you, there's something frightening about this. Uh, There's something intimidating about the presence of being in the presence of God. And some of you are thinking right now, whoa, 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 back up, pastor. What's going on here? This isn't the kind of worship that we're used to. This isn't the kind of picture that we have of God. And we said, you know, you can call him Abba, Daddy. You can, you can, bow, you can climb up into his knee. He'll embrace you. He loves you. A smoldering wick. He's not going to ex- extinguish. And, and, and a bruised reed, he's not going to break. He's that gentle and compassionate and caring. And, and, and we see that picture of Jesus. And he said, well, what about this? Um, that's true. Both of them are true. Jesus is compassionate and gentle. And he welcomes little children to climb up on his lap. He lets a woman wash his feet with her tears and her hair. The, the, uh, the, the ability to be with him and, and to invite his presence and feel so warmly embraced by him. How do we, how do we manage this? What is it saying? And, and here's what I would say. We need to hold two truths in terms of worship in tension with each other. We need to hold two truths in tension. And, and there are two aspects 
And theologians have called it the transcendence of God on one hand and the imminence of God on another hand. So the transcendence of God is, is the greatness of God, his otherness, his, his uh, filling the universe and being out there and being somewhat removed from us because he's so different and so other from us. S- distant. And legitimately, we, call, we need to be careful in his presence. Um, he, he is, uh, he's not to be trifled with. At the same time, we have the imminence of God, and that is the closeness and the familiarity and the intimacy of God. And both of these are legitimate. So we're called to keep these in a balance. Um, I'll tell you, some stuff, in, some stuff in, in, um, in lyrics really bug me. Uh, there's a song in which it says, Heaven meets earth with a sloppy wet kiss. And I'm going, I don't know, I don't think you get that in the throne room. Does it mean that God doesn't love us? In a, no, but I, I think it, it, to me, okay, for me, it sounds disrespectful to who God is. And so we have to hold intention that God is this great, awesome person before, we, before whom we fall before in, in, in total and abject submission. But he also invites us to come close. Draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. And I think as we worship, we, we err if we go one, one way too far or one way uh, or the other way too far. If we're too familiar with God. Hey, yeah, bud. Hey, how's it going? But there, there's something disrespectful about that. And so we need to keep that at the same time, that distance and that closeness. And that takes a little bit of... of uh, care. When Isaiah saw a vision of, the, of, the, of God in Isaiah chapter 6, he was freaked out. He said, I, I, I've come undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And he shrieks, woe to me! We run the risk sometime of being too familiar with God, too buddy-buddy. Yo, pal, a big guy upstairs. This doesn't fit this. You can step over a line. See, God can't be tamed. He, he can't be manipulated. He can't be domesticated. In a lion, you don't play with. You respect a lion. And, 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 and so what we're calling for here is to be careful to have both aspects part of our worship. The closeness of God the gentleness of God, and at the same time that he's worthy of our full uh, devotion and surrender and respect. God is to be revered. Next, God is worthy of worship on the basis of, first, who he is. He's worthy to be worshipped on the basis of who he is. You know, sometimes you can sing, uh, we worship you, we worship you, we praise you, we praise you, we praise you. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But sometimes we have to put some substance to why we worship or praise God. And we worship and praise him for who he is. Mostly, we worship on the basis of some reason. And who he is is his character. And so the perfections of God cause us as his creatures as his children to worship him and and, uh, there are so many perfections of God but here what in in this situation what the what the uh, 
four living creatures did when they were before the throne. They said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He is worshipped on the basis of his holiness. On his hol- he is holy. What, holiness is, is otherness of God. It's God is so set apart from anything else that he is absolutely holy. Now, I know we think about holiness as, as being moral purity and that kind of thing. And that's certainly included in it. But the holiness of God is that he is so other from everything else. He is so different. He is so set apart. And when these angels are worshiping him, they're they're saying, you are holy, holy, holy. And when they repeat it and repeat it and repeat it, you know that it's a really important thing. Um, It's not a one holy. It's not a two holy. It's holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Let Let me say this to you. We worship God and we worship the perfections of his character. And we worship those often at different times that are born out of our experience. Here's the first century church. Here are churches that are under persecution. Um, they, They have a Caesar who demands worship of them. You can have your own personal religion, but you need to also have a religion that would deify and worship the Caesar. You can do your own thing. Christians can't do that. There's no other God for us. And so these worshipers, they're reflecting on what they're going through and for them to read what happens in heaven. Now, it's actually more than holiness because he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So he's almighty. He's all-powerful. And not only that, who is and was and is to come, he's eternal. So you've got this holy God who has all power and all authority and who is eternal, which is not like the Caesars who die. And then we've got another Caesar, another king and another king and another king. And when John is writing this, he's saying that when you see the throne room in heaven, God is worshiped because he's holy, because he's almighty and because he's eternal. And don't be worried. See, he is in control. He has authority. And so, as John is writing this to this persecuted, struggling church, he's helping them to see, to hang in there. God is in control. He is, wor- he is faithful. Um, he's, he will preserve you in persecution. God is worshipped for his character. Great and holy and awesome but all of these other things. And, and sometimes also, you know, you worship him for his love. You worship him for his faithfulness, for his justice, for his wrath. We, we, I don't know of any songs that praise God for his wrath. You see the kind of things that terrible people do? And, and, and God will unleash judgment and wrath upon people. And those are his perfections. And, he, and we worship that. To worship the God who's willing to forgive us, who's merciful and kind. And so we worship God for who he is. But we also worship him um, for what he does. And there are two things, uh, more than, but two things that I'll look at here. We, we worship him because he's creator. Uh, look what it says in chapter 4 and verse 11. Worthy are you, O Lord. Uh, our Lord and God to receive honor and uh, glory, honor and power, 
For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God is worthy of worship alone. And one of the reasons of, or the, of what he does is that he, um, he uh, has created everything. If God created it, it wouldn't exist. There's nothing that exists anywhere, not even a power, authority, knowledge, nothing. Nothing exists outside of God. And, and this becomes a focus of, uh, of uh, worship. And in fact, it's so humbling. If God didn't create you, you wouldn't be here. But he says, uh, to receive glory, because you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Not only did he create everything that exists, but he maintains it. He sustains it. Uh, So here is God as creator. And uh, he can pull the plug on my life at any time. He can, he can change the circumstances in my life. He, I can be in an accident or anything. Um, do you see the fallacy of worshiping, worshiping anything that's not God? Because everything that is comes from God. And so to worship anything other than God is just foolishness. He can pull the plug on any time. And God has created. So, so to, to worship planets or the sun or the moon or animals or even ourselves is just so ridiculous. He is the creator and he's worthy of all worship. But also, he's worthy of worship because he has redeemed us. He's redeemed us. In, in chapter 5, in verses 9 and 10, it says, uh, They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. See, we have no standing with God. As sinful people, we can't stand in the presence of a holy God at all. But God did something for us. He sent Jesus, the lamb who was slain, the lamb who was there on the throne beside the Father. And he gave his life. He shed his blood so that he could redeem, to buy back, buy back from the slave market of sin, uh, people, redeem them uh, for himself from every tribe and language and people and nation. And he made us his people. And you know what? We read in scriptures that the angels long to look into these things because they don't even, they can't sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. They can't, they can't do any of that. But we can. And he, when, he, when they think of something to, to worship about, they think what God has done. He's not only created, he's recreated. He's redeemed us. He sent his son to do that. And he's to be praised. And, and, and we should be reminded all the time to worship him for what he's done. And we do that, we do that when we have communion, don't we? We remember, because if we're forgetting a bit, we come back to the table and remember what he's done. What God does in worship. Let me, say, let me close off here. Just a couple things. Next, worship is ceaseless. In verse 8, when the four living creatures of chapter 4, the four living creatures... Uh, bow down, and they each had uh, uh, wings and were covered with eyes all around, even under the wings. And day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. It's ceaseless. 
You say, I can't, I can't work. I can't take care of my family by just worshiping God all the time. Well, go back to our message before. Everything we do is done in the presence of God and as an act of worship. So that even the most mundane things that we, that we consider, like uh, eating and drinking, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, everything should be done to the glory of God. So everything we do, we're in a, in a state of unceasing worship and outpouring to God, living in his presence, seeking to please him, uh, seeking to um, be what he wants us to be and, and care for others and all the rest. But it's ceaseless. Worship isn't something we came to do this morning. Worship is our life. And finally, worship should be universal. Um, in verse 13, every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth And in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne, worship everything. I'm I'm just going to skip over uh, Psalm 103. Um, In the end of Psalm 103, they're called to worship. Uh, They call the angels to worship, people to worship. Everybody and everything is to worship. I want to just take you, though, to um, Philippians 2, where Jesus gave himself on the cross And uh, he humbled himself. And so God exalted him because he humbled himself to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now I want to say this to you. God demands our worship. You can worship him um, and acknowledge him willfully because you come to understand who he is and what he's done. Or you can unwillingly bow before him when he calls you to account, when you have rejected him, gone your own way, done your own thing. And you will bow before him and you will declare, Jesus Christ, you are Lord, irrespective of how I treated you, what I thought, what I did. None of that matters now. I declare you are Lord. Now, those people don't go to be with him in heaven, but they will acknowledge, they will be forced to acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord. Worship is to be universal. And I'll tell you what, the mission of the church is to help rebels become worshipers of God. And we shouldn't be happy until people who don't know how great and how wonderful our God is uh, comes and And we call people everywhere to come and worship him because he is worthy. Let's pray. Father, we come to you with thanksgiving. What an awesome picture you show us in the revelation. What an awesome picture of worship there is. And Father, I just pray and I ask you to help us to understand how incredible you are and how that demands our all, all of our worship, and that we would offer our lives, our bodies as living sacrifices before you. Father, I pray that you'll help us also to keep in balance that you are, you are a dear father to us who cares compassionately for his children. And, and so we pray, Father, that you would help us to keep that balance, keep our focus on you. You are worthy. You are worthy.